Hi, I'm Aaron Baker, and I beat the often path. And I've done that by overcoming my spinal cord injury and creating a, a great life for myself and my seven-month-old daughter. Have you ever had a moment where, without warning, the path of your entire life was irrevocably changed? That's what happened to my guest today on the Beat the Often Path podcast, the show where we highlight unusual success stories to help us all see our life's work from a new perspective. Now, Aaron Baker was a professional motocross rider. He rode his entire childhood, and he had sponsors and a promising career, you know, the whole works. But his bike stalled midair one day, leaving him with a career-ending spinal cord injury. He was given a one in a million chance of ever regaining function. Well, he's turned all of that around using entrepreneurship and extreme dedication to build a center for people in similar situations, and he's become an advocate and ambassador for the cause. Now, he not only miraculously regained function of his arms and legs, he's taken on unthinkable goals like cycling across the country, participating in marathons, and so much more. I'm really, really grateful to be able to share Aaron's story with you today. So without much further talk from me, here's Aaron Baker. I'm always in search of these kinds of stories, and your story is truly unbelievable. Um, so I want to let you sort of explain a little bit about your life's arc. It's very specific, I know, but why don't you give us the quick introduction to how you ended up where you are? Quick introduction, yeah. I mean, encapsulating this whole ride into a nutshell. Um, That's what we do here. <laughs> uh, I grew up in the, the Monterey Bay, Central California. Um, was a young, ambitious athlete. I traveled the country racing a motorcycle. That was really what I was passionate about as a boy. Although my mom had uh, other ideas for my sister and me, she tried to relocate us to Indonesia when we were quite young. Okay, wow. Yeah, completely different life uh, off the motorcycle. Um, Whoa. She enriched us with a lot of culture and music and, and travel, obviously. But I was still uh, hell-bent on racing that little motorcycle. And so that's what I pursued as a teenager. Uh, turned professional uh, at 17. And I, I was just uh, uh, pursuing that, uh, that profession. I mean, it's a high-risk sport. And I ended up having an accident okay. in 1999. Uh, there was a malfunction with the motorcycle. I went over the handlebars and, and crashed headfirst into the ground. And that effectively paralyzed me. It broke my neck. It broke my neck in three places. And I had a very grim prognosis that I was going to have a one in a million chance of ever recovering. Wow. The doctor said I wouldn't be able to feed myself. And... Um, Immediately, my, my mom rejected that prognosis. I definitely rejected that prognosis. Uh, we adopted this mindset of not leaving any stone unturned, just really working hard, creating an optimal healing environment. I used music as a, a major force of concentration and reconnection, uh, tones and sounds and chants. And, cool. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it shaped my um, ability to reconnect my mind to the muscles. Amazing. That's awesome. And you, I'm sure, as a, as a musician, as a DJ, someone that really dives yes. deep into that realm, Absolutely. can understand and appreciate the power of sound. I can, and that's why it's incredible to hear that. So you, you would say it's an instrumental part of your recovery? Integral. Wow. I didn't know that yeah. reading your info. That's cool. Very oh, yeah. cool. No, 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 okay. That's uh, if you can direct uh, those frequencies into a very laser like focus, uh, it's like a scalpel, you know. Mm. Um, the, the, there's a story my sister, you know, early in, the, in my recovery, my sister painted my toenails rainbow colors with her nail polish, trying to get a rise out of me. Uh, because I could, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. So she right. thought it was funny that she would do this. And, and uh, what I ended up doing was visualizing those colors of light. My toes look like Skittles. Yeah. And my left big toe was blue. My right big toe was red. And combining the the sounds with the visualization was how I was able to direct my mind into my body and connect to my left blue toe. 
Whoa. So that, that color had a tone. Whoa. So you developed synesthesia or you always had it or? I mean, through that process. Whoa. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. And and so that was in in essence, the beginning of my recovery process. Mm. Uh, And I still use it to this day uh, in meditation and in my focused, willed intention. Right. Well, I have to say at the outset here that your your story is all wrong because the way it was supposed (laughs) to go, you're supposed to have always known that you were going to be a motorcycle rider. You're supposed to be a world champion. You're supposed to only do that and become a multimillionaire for the rest of your life. End of story, right? That's that's how it's supposed to go. Sure, in the script. (laughs) Yeah, that's the script. What's all this other detour stuff? Um, (laughs) As it often happens. You know, it's funny enough you should mention motorcycling. So a buddy of mine got me into watching MotoGP. He's obsessed with it. And I watch it. It almost gives me a heart attack just to watch the sport. I can't imagine doing it. Like, that's, that's insane. Just, just seeing how close. I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing to, to witness. Um, so you, you, you turned pro. This happened. You're, you're recovering slowly. Now you have a very, very different life's mission. So what, what, is, what is it that you're all about these days? Well, these days I'm all about... Um uh, forging a new path. Um, I, I had a big um, fork in the road a year and a half ago, just pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. I, I sold a business that uh, was all-consuming for the last two decades. It was the rehab facility that my mom and I ended up built, uh, establishing because of my injury. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we turned our trauma into um, some purpose. And so I'm, I'm digressing here. I'm going backwards into you know, all my recovery and all the, the things that I accomplished up till 2011 led us to the point of opening a gym. Okay. A rehab center. And that was what we were compelled to create for other people like me because there weren't places to go. Sure. Right. Once you're discharged from the hospital, um, there were no, no facilities that could help me get any better. So that's what we established. Fast forward to the end of 2019, and we had sold it. Okay. Moving forward to a new chapter of life, and then COVID hit. So mm. I, I feel very lucky that the timing was perfect. And now today, like I said, uh, we had a COVID baby. All right. <laughs> Born in December. Yep. And now we're, uh, we're up here in the hills uh, enjoying fatherhood. Consulting with friends and, and other professionals on how to set up businesses like uh, like rehab facilities, and uh, speaking to guys like you, man. Well, that's great. So yeah, so I, I love the entrepreneurial side of this journey. Um, when did you first get the idea that this was something that you wanted to build? Your the facility, yeah, your facility. Oh, early on. Okay. Early on, because I was desperate. A year after my injury, I was in the darkest place of my life. I wanted to end it all. I was very suicidal. There weren't any places for me to go. I knew that in my heart, I had the will to work hard. But since there weren't any any spaces to facilitate that, I was basically, uh, you know, just um, falling apart. Mm. And when we identified a, an adaptive uh, program at a local university, California State University, Northridge. There was a special um, kinesiology department there that had unique and specialized equipment, and they worked with people like me with my injury. And the moment we, my mom wheeled me through those doors, it was a light bulb. It mm. was like, wow, why does this not exist You know, for the general population? Why does it have to be shrouded under a university cloak? Mm. Why did we have to search so hard to, to find this? And I know there's so many other, so many more people like me that need it. Yeah. So that's, that was the entrepreneurial spark. Right. Uh, the genesis of this idea of, hey, let's recreate something like this, but you know, out in the world. Okay. So, so when you knew that this was what you wanted to do, what were the steps? How do you go about doing something on that scale? Uh, you just, I mean, 
for my mom and me, I mean, I barely have an high school education. She was a importer. So this isn't exactly our wheelhouse. Sure. But we were living it. So we understood like kind of the mechanisms and what needed to be in place in order to create a, uh, a healing environment mm-hmm. uh, with the right types of professionals, with the certain level of empathy uh, and creativity to think outside of the typical physical therapy box. Mm. Because that's a pretty small box. Sure. And it's, it's, uh, um, it's limited by insurance coverage. Okay. Right. So our there's model a cap, was, but there's just like a number beyond which yeah. you can't go or they just don't support exactly. this thing in general. But above. Yeah. I mean, there's a number cap and you know, there's a, there's a thinking cap. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's more about adaptation instead right. of possibility. The, the way the old school, uh, prognosis, uh, method is, uh, it's probability outcome rather than possibility. Mm. So I, I've kind of wanted to flip that script and plant seeds of possibility in people's minds so that they can pursue recovery rather than just accept an injury and try to adapt to some, you know, limited lifestyle. Because given one in a million that would fall under the, Hey, probably it's never going to work out. So why bother? category but i'm more like the jim carrey yeah you're giving me a chance you're saying there's a chance (laughs) that's right focus on the one right okay so you did you acquire a building or how what were the steps we saved our nuts man we started saving our pennies and it took us a lot of years uh we we did some bicycle tours where i was you know i was pretty serious about my recovery and and I was an athlete before and an athlete still. So I started cycling again as a part of my recovery. And I did a couple of LA marathons with my mom on a tandem bicycle. I sat on the back. She pedaled the front. Wow. We did the LA marathon uh, four times. Incredible. And then we were presenting to an audience one, one day and I blurted out on stage. I said, if we're, doing these, these, uh, marathons, why don't we do it like Forrest Gump and ride across the country? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I made this declaration publicly and my mom's jaw dropped and everybody else thought I was nuts. But in 2007, we did it. We pedaled from San, uh, San Diego, sorry about that, San Diego, 3,182 miles to, uh, Florida. San Diego to Florida on a tandem bike. On a tandem bicycle. Unbelievable. How long did that take? Three and a half months. Three and a half months. Oh my goodness. So just then, pedal for the uh, day and then stay in a hotel somewhere? Or that, that no, we had, a, we had a follow vehicle, a nice okay. uh, motorhome. I, I did it just, you know, the, uh, I set it up like a race team. So I had a lot of sponsors. I had all the sponsored logos on the side of the bus. I had a trailer with all of our spare parts and equipment and, uh, we just set out on the road. So I would pedal 30 to 60 miles every day. Okay. And that motorhome would just follow along and we would stop, you know, for 30 minutes or an hour and have something to eat and just keep riding every day. Three and a half months. I'm assuming this was and, during the summer at least, right? You know, we started in June, so okay. it was dead hot. We rode the southern tier. Okay. Which is right along the bottom of the country. Whoa. Oh I insane. bet. But anyways, I, I bring that up because we were promoting this, this idea. You know, back then, nothing existed like this. And every little town we'd ride through or I would give presentations to hospitals and rehab centers and I would talk about this concept, try to validate it. it basically get a, you know, gauge the temperature when people use something like this. Hmm. And it was unanimous everywhere we went. Everybody was like, yes, absolutely. We need some kind of facility like this. And, uh, on the heels of that tour, I was progressing so well that I was able to ride my own three wheeled bicycle and pedal under my own power. Whoa. And so we continued the tour and pedaled from San Francisco to Washington, DC, 4,202 miles Whoa. the following year. Oh my goodness. You did it all Continuing again. this reverse marketing type idea. So that as soon as we returned home from that, um, you know, we, we continued to raise money. We continued to save and look for, uh, facility opportunities 
all the while at that point, I started racing the trike uh, with the Paralympic program. And I just posted a photo on Instagram this morning uh, referencing that time when uh, it was a Paralympic journey for myself and, and uh, honoring what's going on right now, which is the games. Yeah. Man, that's, that's truly, truly incredible. So when you're recovering during this, did, was that a surprise to you? You're halfway through this journey and now you're able to pedal under your own strength. Was that something that you expected or? No, just, hell no. So how? Yeah, no. Expectation because right. basically in the beginning, you know, just a flicker of movement, you know, when I flicked yeah. my left toe, that was celebration. Like, right. Yeah. And then I flicker my other toe and then I start doing, I mean, they're just tiny little wins. Right. I've seen and Kill Bill. All, I know how it works. They all mean something. Right. And so I guess my, I just kept raising my bar, right? Like yeah. if I could pedal one mile, I wanted to pedal five miles. If I could pedal five, I wanted to do 20. If I could do 20, then why not just go across the country? Like I just kept leveling up. Okay, folks, we're going to stop the programming here for just a little quick second to get in a little personal plug. The plug is this. If you're enjoying these stories, if you enjoy hearing from these types of people, understand that it takes a lot of work to put this show together for you every week. So I would really appreciate it if you would hit that pause button. And right now, this very second, you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts. You leave a nice, thoughtful review. Subscribe on Spotify. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow me on Instagram at the Ross Palmer. Do whatever you can to help spread this message. Share this episode with friends, with family, with people who need to hear it. Maybe somebody who's going through a tough time. This could be exactly what they need to hear. So again, I want to grow this podcast with you, and I can't do it without your help. So please help me grow it. And now let's get back to the show. So how did you get sponsors for this? Did you just share your story or? Yeah, I mean, I, I leaned on the motorcycle industry at first okay. because I had a name mm-hmm. as an amateur there and, I, you know, young professional and a lot of relationships. So I leaned on some of them and a handful of them had st- stuck with me through my injury and and um, supported me in, in my you know, endeavors. And then I reached out to uh, equipment manufacturers and things that I felt would be um, a good fit for what I was doing. For example, there's a piece of exercise equipment called a new step. It's like a recumbent stair walker stepper thing. Okay. And I literally put the logo on the side of the bus, but I put a piece of equipment in the van or in the, the trailer so that when I would pull up to a hospital to give a presentation, I'd also do a demonstration. Nice piece of exercise. That was the deal that you made. Yeah. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah. You just uh, bring all the right people to the table and everybody gets to enjoy the ride. That's amazing. So you, you open this facility, obviously at this point, buzz has clearly been building. I would assume people have seen you ride across the country twice. People are interested. You've gotten backers. So when you open the doors, was it automatically a waiting list where people automatically ready to come in or how did that part yeah, go? Yeah, exactly that. Okay. Exactly that, Ross. It's a, it was a little waiting, waiting list and I always felt like I needed to keep my foot kind of on the brake mm. uh, so that we didn't lose control and we could maintain quality as we were basically building the plane during flight. Right. Now we were trying to uh, create a business that didn't have a blueprint. Mm. And, you know, we were wearing all the hats, uh, playing all the roles. And, um, you know, we were doing all this before social media was happening. I think about it now, man, if I were touring now, if I were riding across the country doing all these things and I had, you know, the platforms that we do now to really get people engaged, we could make some waves. That's true. It's really like meant for social media, that kind of trip. It's almost a shame. It's like exactly what Instagram was designed for, it seems like. Uh, Yeah, I was doing uh, on-the-road vlogs with the old flip cam. Sure, I remember that, yeah. Talking to the flip cam and and then uh, posting it online. You had a small following, but not like you can do today. Right, I'm sure. So were you... Obviously, we talked about insurance companies and that being kind of weird. Were you interfacing with insurance companies or was it yeah. not involved with them at all because they wouldn't do any, they don't care? They wouldn't do anything, yeah. Right. They, were, they were 
We were uh, the antithesis. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that was part of our model was to create it so that it was, it was uh, feasible for people to, to build it into their lifestyle. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, their insurance wasn't going to cover it, so mm-hmm. they were paying out of pocket. We mm-hmm. need to be able to provide them a service that they could afford and that would be effective. Yeah, and and how many people could you serve per year? Or, well, you know, the first facility was just under two thousand square feet, so it was a tiny little footprint. Okay. You know, so we were we were turning small numbers, and then in two thousand seventeen, we scaled up to a second facility, three times as big, and we were able to to really start moving some traffic. But then uh, there was just um, a breakdown in synergy within uh, our partnership. Mm. And we were saying that my vision versus his vision and uh, just wasn't going to work long-term. And uh, basically, you know, we, uh, we went through this entire um, process to part ways. Okay. It was incredibly educational <laughs> and stressful. Okay. But um, the right thing, ultimately, and I'm really happy uh, looking back on what my mom and I created and what it did for the community. So wow. Maybe I'll do another one. I don't know. Oh, you think you might get back? I was going to ask. Well, you know, the world's changing right now as we speak. You know, COVID changed a lot of things. The old brick and mortar facilities are a little antiquated at the moment. Mm-hmm. People are still on the fence. They don't, you know. So I, I'm hesitant to go out and actually hang a shingle again. Mm. I think it's more online. I think it's more digitized. Yeah. Think, you know, engaging an audience with information like this yep. uh, can reach more people. Mm. So I think I just need to partner with the right developer in that sense yep because i have all the info i know how to do it and do you think that there's stuff that people can do remotely i guess i don't know what kind of gear is needed or special machines is there enough to be done that you could do it virtually i mean i could definitely empower somebody to take more control over their quality of life right right and there are things that people can do um is it as, as effective as one-on-one, you know, when mm. somebody's actually holding your hand, taking you through it? No. Mm. But maybe there's a happy medium. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I'm letting it kind of, I want to just see what this next year does, you know? Yeah, that's the story of the entire country right now in the world. Aren't we all, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, we're still in it, aren't we? We'll be out of here someday, I think. Right? I hope. Um, so that's, that's obviously really, really amazing. Um, now you mentioned that you did speaking. So you, have you done a a lot of speaking gigs? Have you shared your story in a lot of places? How did you do that? Yeah. Um, that started pretty early on. I'd say, you know, as my recovery was, um, was really, uh, um, becoming known. I think I was a bit of an anomaly in the, uh, the early 2000s, with my level of injury and my level of recovery, uh, it really wasn't, wasn't seen before. There may have been one or two stories. So we felt compelled to, to share what we were doing that was yielding such great results. And with always being sensitive to the fact that each injury is very different. Mm-hmm. And I would never say that if you do what I do, you'll have a similar outcome. Mm-hmm because that's just not realistic. Right. But I can tell you wholeheartedly that if you don't do something, then it's very predictable, the outcome. Okay. Um, so anyhow, we started to, to get on stages. You know, I would go to uh, health and fitness conferences. Uh, like I said, rehab centers and hospitals. I would speak directly to new, newly injured patients and or uh, healthcare professionals, talking to them about uh, you know, their approach, the language that they use, how do you engage somebody in their most vulnerable moment mm-hmm. and to have some type of bedside manner mm-hmm. that helps them with an empowered mindset. Yep. Um, so yeah, I've, I've given many, many presentations over the last two decades. Did you do schools as well? 
Yeah, I love interactive schools. schools. Yeah, be a yeah, perfect their story minds to share. are thirsty for this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, chain of events. You know, I'm always fascinated by moments like that. Now, it's in a, in a my own very small way. I had a a much more minor version of a moment like that. But my whole childhood, I wanted to be a soccer player. That's all I ever wanted to be. That's, I was obsessed with it. I was played competitively up through high school. The only vision I had of the future was scoring a goal in the World Cup. That was it. I had no other idea for myself. Sophomore year, going to score a goal off my left leg, kid slide tackles me, bends my knee backwards. The, old, the whole unhappy triad, as they call it, ACL, MCL, meniscus, torn. Uh, that ended the whole soccer thing. And, and I had to do the surgery, and I couldn't, couldn't run or walk, really, for about a year. And then, I, then I actually, the surgery was a success, so I could have played. But then you come back and you're like, I don't, I don't really want to do this anymore. I don't yeah. want a 200 pound person running at me with full force anymore. It just didn't, it didn't have the same appeal. But I remember the moment when I heard the news from the doctor when they called and they said, "This is what happened." Because I was still holding on hope that maybe it was just a hyperextension or that it'd be a six week healing process. And I remember the phone call where they said, "Nope, your knee is." completely blown out. There will be no healing without surgery. And in my mind, my whole vision of the future just evaporated. And I remember just, I think I took like an hour long shower, just, just crying. I, I had no vision of what, how I could be happy like ever again in that moment. Obviously, a few years later, I met theater kids and I discovered theater and acting. And then I found an even better group of friends and something that I love even more. So eventually it became great, obviously, but I'm curious how you see that journey for people when their vision of their life, when it completely changes, when something snaps and it's like, oh, you know, how, how do you see that process going for you, for other people, the path to happiness from a tragic event? That is our challenge, isn't it? Because life has a way of, of uh, doing that quickly without warning. You know, you, you're completely dedicated to one direction and then it changes. Um, I tell the story of uh, my Paralympic pursuit. I think it's relevant to today because it's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Paralympics. I spent uh, nearly four years pursuing the London Games after all my cycling tours. Like I said, I, I started that process and dedicated my entire life to that goal. Everything was invested. And three days before I was to get on the plane and go, I got sick. I had a bladder infection. I was rushed to the emergency room. I sent selfies of myself to my coaches who were already there and said, I'm not coming. Yeah. On paper, I was a medal, medalist. I was, I was slated to do really well in the games. Mm -hmm. And life changed in an instant. And there was nothing I could do about it. And that ended my cycling career. I mean, right then, that was done. I mean, now it's uh, a blank slate again. And what do you do? And then you go through phases of, of uh, grievance, you know. Um, but then you just have to be willing to, like my recovery, take one small step at a time and celebrate that step. Control what's in your immediate control. Right, recognize some type of progress in that day, in that moment, and not think too far ahead and not think too far back because that just perpetuates suffering. You're attached to some kind of uh, memory or expectation, mm. and those are the roots of suffering. Yeah, that attachment. Do you think you've been able to? develop that muscle over the years? Do you think you've gotten better at shutting out the, that initial wave of negative thoughts? Is that a skill that people can hone or is it always yes tough? Yes and no. Okay. Yes and no. Okay. Right? The, the older I get, the more humbled I get realizing <laughs> that I just don't know a dang thing. Right. <laughs> um, and it is a challenge. It's a muscle you have to work. I mean, if you don't stay on top of this type of thinking – and keep the mantra of gratitude in, in your mind, you know, keep it all in perspective and recognize what you do have, your health, this breath, this moment, people that love you, food in your stomach, roof over your head, like 
recognize those basic, simple things that are actually most important. Right. Um, you can get caught up in these dysfunctional loops in your mind. Yep. These patterns of um, self-sabotage or, or a dysfunctional behavior. Yeah. Like that just kind of, it, it will creep up on you. And uh, I think it's just a, an exercise that is as vital as uh, quality movement in your life. Mm-hmm. So I, I always have to keep myself in check. Right. You know, to, to your question, it's something that you can get better at if you work at it. Yeah, I think we we all do. It's it's so easy, especially in the social media age, like they say. It's so easy to look at others, people who have something you want. You know, why is their post getting 10,000 likes and mine has three, you know, all of these little tiny things each day. You look at somebody else and sometimes it wears on you. You know, sometimes you see something and it's, it's frustrating and, and then you think. But then other times you can be mindful of what the alternative is like by the time our episode airs my last week's guest he talks about how he's from a part of india rural india where nobody has access to education and he tried to bring that to them and you think to yourself you know how how lucky are we you know especially here in california you got the sunshine you got all these amazing things we're so lucky so many basic things that we take for granted but are not taken for granted elsewhere in the world millions or even billions of people don't have the stuff that you and I have today. And look how happy a lot of them are. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. If you look at, you know, third world countries and you see just some of the the kids playing in the streets, they're happy. And it's just like a wheel and a stick and it's simple. It's not complicated. I, I was speaking to a friend about this yesterday, about how insulated we are here Western society and it makes us lethargic and complacent yep. and confused and mm-hmm. we've got too much time on our hand to fabricate all this baloney right. and create mountains out of molehills where if you just get back down to the basics of survival, like uh, if you know some of my story, I, I willingly went out to Death Valley and I walked across Death Valley for a week carrying all my own supplies. And in that space, it's just survival. But it was purposeful. I wanted to go there and strip away all my, you know, all this insulation and get down to just the raw life force, connect back to the earth, learn how to survive and manage my time, energy, and risk. And uh, that cut through a lot of BS of everyday life. Wow. So I, I actually recommend periodically to go out there and reconnect, get deep into nature, yeah. strip away all this insulation, learn how to survive a little bit, and tap into your inner like life force strength. Yeah. What What uh, did you realize from doing that? Realize that I'm pretty fucking tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I'd I mean, I I say that qualifies, yeah, sure. I mean, it just, when you're faced with the edge, yeah, right, where it's, it's pretty simple, there's only a, one or two decisions that you need to make in order to, like, survive. Uh, you, you realize that the, the will to live is very powerful, mm. right? Like, look at the, a seedling, what it has to do in order to bud and break through you know, the ground in order to then bud and survive. Like the life force is strong. So I learned that about myself by going out there into a space, 120 degrees, Death Valley. Like it's not a place uh, that's comfortable. Very uncomfortable, very unpleasant. You have to learn how to manage that. And then it, it activates the cellularly. So do you feel like that that kind of thing, that's sort of like hitting a reset button? It's something that should be done once a year, every other year? Yeah. I mean, I'm due. Okay. I'm due right now. Like, I, I, I need to, uh, I mean, my daughter's really challenging me and stuff, like, uh, but in a different way. You know, mm. I'm still in the, in the comforts of a great home and I'm safe and insulated and all that. But 
I do need to go um, give myself that time to get quiet. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that, that, you know, in all of this, that the adversity has helped you? I mean, do you feel at this point that it helped you more than it hurt you? Or is that too much to say? Absolutely. 100%. It helped me. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. Cool. The adversity is what like forces us to, to be good, Mm -hmm. to evolve, to Mm -hmm. change, to like actually be activated. That's the whole point. When Mm -hmm. I say that we're insulated because without that pressure, without that challenge, that, you know, the, we're just soft. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't we don't utilize, you know, uh, all of our senses. We don't utilize our, our skills, our talents, our brains, our bodies. And what's it? The cliche: if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm-hmm. So, use it. Use it. That's right. And you obviously chose, I mean, so many great entrepreneurial stories start with people being personally affected by something and they decide to start a business. A lot of people I've talked to seems to be a surefire way to find something interesting. Um, So you created this facility. What are some of the stories you can share of the operation? What are some success stories? Some What did people say who went through your facility or your program? Any Anything that's of note? It was, I mean, there were so many great stories. What was great is that it took the attention off my story and it opened the door to everybody else. And they came through and I got to work, you know, go through the routines and the exercises and the process shoulder to shoulder with high level quadriplegics. Um, You know, those that have suffered strokes People that have come back, you know, uh, from from war with missing limbs, um, just the variety of of people that would that I got exposed to and that I befriended um, was really inspiring. And we would just reflect to each other the human spirit. All of a sudden, our our differences and our, our difficulties disappeared when we were in this space with the intention or the desire to just be better, Mm. better tomorrow than we are today. And, um, so I got to, I got to see a lot of people transform in front of my eyes, you know, coming in with their, their head hung low and, and on that edge that I know, you know, Mm. that dark place Yeah, to see the light come back in their eyes and to see them take their first step. Wow. Or to do something for the first time. Uh, man. But uh, really, there wasn't much better, anything better than, than, than that. I can't really imagine anything much better than that, truthfully. Other than your daughter. Right. Yeah, but that, that's, that, those are the foundational things, though. But, like, do you think that a medal could compare with that feeling, you know, honestly? No. Right? No, hell no. You know, you, you took a human being at their lowest point, several human beings at their absolute lowest point, and you bring them back to life. I mean, what on earth is better than that? It's, a, it's an amazing, uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience and place to be. So, so I, I want to keep doing that. I mean, yeah, it's a, I get it. It's purposeful. It feels good to lay your head down at night after I get it, right. But you could just, you know... You could just try to get a Lamborghini, go down to Rodeo Drive, and you could park a Lamborghini down there and just show people how much money you have. That's another thing you could do. A lot of influencers are doing that. <laughs> right? You could just, that, that's another alternative that I would propose to you. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't have the same allure, though. Not, not quite. Thing, the feeling. Not quite. Well, you know, now I, I really, really, really want to ask about the music part which is something I was not expecting. So tell me about this music recovery method that you you came up with, or did somebody else introduce it to you? How did you get tipped off to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it all started with like the, you know, Tibetan monk chants, uh, singing bowls, um, Gregorian chants, like 
The old stuff. But where? Who? Who said? How did you get my it? Your, oh, your, your mom said, "Let's try yeah, this." Yeah, my and mom you I said, mean, "Okay." Well, like I said, you know, she she took us around the world when we were young, and right. so I, I was exposed to this stuff, and I remember hearing these types of sounds and stuff when I was young, um, the real stuff. And then in those early days in the hospital, when the room is filled with mechanical noises, you know heart rate monitors and life support machines and all this stuff. She brought in a CD player and just started playing. Like I said, you know, Carlos Nakai, Native American flutes, chants, you know, uh, and that resonated with my, with every cell. Mm. I mean, just the frequencies of those, of those sounds just transported me um, out of my body in on top of the Himalayas, you know, like anyhow, so it starts there. And then, you know, at that time, uh, early 2000s, well, 1999, I mean, electronic music was just coming on the scene, you know, like there were some, just some grooves that I really enjoyed. And I started to kind of take a deep dive into um, cymatics and uh, hemi-sync uh, type frequencies, 432 hertz and everything within that realm. And those tones and those sounds were just really uh, vibing with me. Like it, mm. it was harmonious. And so I started to, to use those sounds deliberately in my, in my visualization process, right? It just feels right. Hmm. And so I just, I was combining these worlds of, of music and visualization and uh, I still do. Oh, so were you, did you switch to headphones? Do any of the binaural beats oh, yeah. and stuff? Okay. All that stuff. So you, you upgraded from your boom box over time and yeah, got something a little sure. better. Uh, so what were you... What were you doing then while listening to these things? What were you visualizing or what was going on inside? It, uh, I mean, using, using color as the tangible, you know, uh, uh, target, right? Like, because it's a bit ambiguous to imagine what your neurochemical signals look like, uh, biochemical. Um, and so it was, it was the color that was the, the specific target. And in my meditation, in my breathing exercises, it was me moving this energy into my limbs, through my nervous system, into my muscles. Uh, There's a a Scientology uh, technique called touch assist. I'm not a Scientologist, but a friend, family friend, introduced me to this thing called touch assist, which is basically... Uh, like I'm laying there, my eyes closed, doing this visualization, listening to these tones, and a person would stand at my bedside and use their finger, and I imagined it like ET's finger, sure, right there, blowing, like glowing, tip, blowing tip, and they would touch the side of my head here and ask me if they, if I could feel my finger, if I could feel their finger, and I would acknowledge and say yes, and they would move to the other side of my body. Same spot. Can you feel my finger? Yes. Can you feel my finger? 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 And so I'm visualizing just that finger touching me in that part of the body. All my attention, all my awareness would go right to that spot. And I would draw lines in my mind through my body of energy. Mm. So I'm moving it and I'm reconnecting, feeling it, moving it. And so that's how I was uh, willfully making the reconnection within my nervous system. Wow. And when that first happened, if your legs were touched, you would feel nothing then? At first. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they would touch me yeah. on my shoulder and I couldn't feel it. Okay. So I, they would touch harder or they would scratch yeah. and paint or tickle or, still... or move a little bit until I could acknowledge it. Yeah. And then I would drive all that attention there. So how long was it before you could feel anything? Yeah, I mean, the first, I was in the hospital for six months. Okay. Which is not 
uh, common today. You move through the system quite quickly. Oh boy. Um, so it was, you know, uh, those first few months and then discharged at six months and then went into an outpatient program for another six months. And so I'm doing this daily, these techniques, I'm doing it multiple times a day. Um, and, uh, you know, months turn into years. Mm. Wow. That's so, so fascinating, man. And so eventually, how long was it before you could start doing a little movement then? Well, in, in those first six months, they had me in water. Okay. They put me in, in four feet of water and then three feet of water. And so a tiny little flicker on land under gravity would turn into a bit more of a gross movement in water. Yeah. So, um, you know, two therapists were able to hold me upright and lock my knees out and get me standing. Major problem was blood pressure. When I would go from lying to sitting or from sitting to standing, my blood pressure would drop dramatically. Mm. I still have problems regulating the blood pressure just depending on what I'm doing because my muscles are still pretty impaired. My body's still working through this, uh, this electrical interruption. What an interesting, interesting story. Do you, have you ever thought about, have you written this down or have you thought about writing a book on this subject? It seems like it could be very interesting. I, yeah, I'd actually, I'd like to elaborate more or work with somebody that's really well-versed in the space. But um, I've written something called My Painted Toes. Okay. It's not published yet, but it's, it's complete. Okay. Uh, and it's this process. Yeah. And I do reference um, music. I do reference the, these sounds. I reference cymatics and how you know sound frequencies literally affect matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of the idea, right? So cool. When you put it out there, you have to let me know. I will buy this book for sure. So nice. you got to shoot me a message when it becomes real. Good man. Yeah, and I have a memoir as well. So, uh, Great. I'm just, working on finding the right publishing house to work with me because I've got, you know, plenty of stuff to talk about. A whole nother can of worms, obviously. So the the question on every motorcycle fan's mind, would you let your daughter get on a bike (laughs) at a young age? Well, she's already making uh, Momo sounds. She's because I have a Harley. Okay. I ride ride this three-wheeled Harley uh, all the time. Nice. Um, I don't know. I mean, life itself is, is pretty dangerous. So you got to just do what tickles your fancy. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Try to be calculated. Can't fair enough. Yeah. I always wonder that. Cause again, with the MotoGP riders, they start them so young. You see them on those tiny bikes. They're like four years old and they're going little circles around a parking lot. I learned to ride a motorcycle before a bicycle. I was three years old. That's crazy. See, that was never that was never even on the radar in my household. That was never even a thought that possibly entered into my family. Like never in a million years. I don't even think I saw a motorbike of any kind until I was like fourteen or something like that. <laughs> and one of the neighbor kids had one of those little tiny bikes, those little mini sport bikes that are you yeah. know three hundred bucks or whatever. And I thought, I was like, <laughs> whoa, man, that was like it. Um. But yeah, yeah, that's 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 such a cool story. So the next, what's I mean, we already kind of touched on what's next for you. You're thinking maybe I'll open a new facility. What other goals do you have in the coming years or months aside from keeping your daughter safe and healthy? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got some pretty pretty fun ideas that I'd like to to see happen. I really want to, um, you know, when the world allows to to be able to travel again, um. I was doing some wheelchair travel uh, videos where I uh, would explore like big cities with the wheelchair using only public transportation. Oh, that's a cool idea. How, you know, like how good or how bad it is, depending on. Yeah, but I wasn't really rating it. Oh, okay. I I wasn't, uh, I'm not out there to poo poo anything that that isn't accessible Mm -hmm. because most of the world isn't accessible. Mm. But the whole point is to be have like this childlike wander and mm. be adventurous and willing to just get out there and 
and, and see the world. There's mm-hmm. tons to see. And the chair is just a vehicle, yep. right? It's just a tool to go from A to B. Right. And so that's more the spirit uh, that I lead with. And obviously I get faced with, you know, inaccessible areas and, and diversity, but it's okay. So now what? Let's you know, change that. Mm. Yeah. So I was doing that and I want to do more of that. Um, so I've got some plans for that. Uh, especially right now as my daughter is still really young and we can just put her in a backpack. There you go. That's a great idea. Yeah. But then to also, you know, build out some, some, uh, teaching and coaching, uh, curriculum that I can help others continue yep. their own healing process. I think that's also a great idea. Yeah. And, and if there's somebody out there listening who's going through a personal tragedy of some kind, physical or otherwise, very difficult moment, what do you, what do you have to say to that person? You've got to be willing to, to go through that, you know, um, let go of the resistance, allow the suffering to be felt because it's real and it's okay. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. You're feeling like that. This is the spectrum of the human experience. And after that, uh, then come back to gratitude and take a breath with an awareness of we are here. We are now. If there's people around you that love you, embrace them. Uh, be of service to someone else. Right? In your own struggle, go out of your way to help someone else who may be suffering the same or if not worse. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that can um, uh, transcend your own difficulty. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, And then surround yourself with with others that are wanting to be better, man. Right? Yeah. And I think it's from your website. You quoted, I believe, Napoleon Hill, what the mind can conceive and believe can achieve. Did you know that that was a Napoleon Hill? Are you a fan of Napoleon Hill? Yeah. Okay. That resonated with me early on. Yeah. Early, early on. It it is between our ears, man. Uh, You know, yeah, you said between the six inches, that's the space of the mind. That's. Yeah, my, my old mechanic, as I was a, when I was a young racer, told me that. I was throwing a fit because I had lost a race, and I was making all these excuses and all this, this crap. And, and he pulls me aside and he just says, Aaron, the only difference between you and the fastest guy in the world is the six inches between your ears and how you think about it. And I just went, hmm. oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, the other, the other great part of that book is that he says there's no adversity that doesn't contain within it the seed of an equal or greater benefit. And that's the, the flip of it, and that's what you're able to do. So I guess if the message we could you know, summarize this whole thing is when hit by that kind of adversity, and it's the Buddhist sayings as well, think about how could this be the best thing? What could I do to flip this? And in your case, it was being an advocate. It was setting up the center. It was, you know, speaking. It was raising money. All of those things turned this into a far greater positive than the negative of one person's experience. Yeah, it's simple saying of instead of being the victim, this has happened to me. It's happening for me. Yeah. And uh, great opportunities to grow. Fascinating. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to to join me. This has been really, really cool to sit with you and and to share your story. I do want to um, end with a couple of quick things, as I always do. So the first one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece? Well, it wasn't from a person. I'm intrigued. It was just, you know, I, I died in the hospital and I have a vivid recollection of that. And that shapes my entire reality, like that experience. Um, you know, it, it truly is what all religion and philosophy points to, which is a oneness, an interconnectedness of, of everything. It was my own dissolution, my own merging 
into the vast expanse of connectivity. And that's why music and sound, frequencies and waves of which we all are, makes so much sense to me. That was what shapes my awareness, my reality today. That's advice for me. That's it, it awesome. Come, and I, I agree with you. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> we got to share some music, man. I'm yeah. Like, oh, definitely. No, 1999 was the year when I first started getting into all the trance and electro. I mean, that's when I started. You never saw me without headphones from 1999 onwards. So I'm with yeah. you. I still believe in frequencies. I've said it a million times. I've said it publicly. It's about the frequencies. Some people say, you know, I, I know myself and I didn't pursue that music career because I know that I wasn't born a composer. I like doing it, but I don't have the talent for producing. But mixing, what I do, is a different thing. And that's all about frequencies hitting the ear. That's literally all it is. Somebody else can write a song. I'll take that song and I'll change the frequencies because I have in my head a certain way that the frequencies need to hit my brain from yes. listening to music 14 hours a day, every okay. day since I was 10 years old. And I feel very few people have, have thought that way that I've encountered in my life. So that's truly fascinating that you do. And when you hit it, it just rings so true. Yes. It, mm, yes. It, yeah, good man. Yeah, dude. And when I was in middle school, high school, I was listening to this stuff nobody had even heard. I found when Amazon Napster came around, I was downloading all of these things. Nobody within 100 miles of Denver, Colorado, knew anything that I was listening to. They only what knew... Your, what were your mixed discs? Your mixed oh, man. Stuff. Sasha, John Digweed. Sasha, I was listening John to. Digweed. Oh, man. The legends. Uh, I was into Paul Van Dyke. BT was an early one. Aphex Twin. Uh, hybrid some amazing stuff. I just couldn't believe what they were doing. And at this time, if I said, hey, what do you guys know about this? They would say, ugh, I hate techno. Everything was called techno by ignorant people. Yeah, and the only person who made techno was Moby. And everybody hated Moby and they hated techno because Eminem hated Moby and Eminem said techno sucked. <laughs> that was the environment that I grew up in. And it took Same. me four years of college DJing every weekend before I could finally convince people, hey, this is music that's good. So my first DJ parties in college was all hip-hop because that was all what anybody would let me play. Hip-hop, oldies, or pop. That's it. Do you any real music? Do you got Rihanna? Um, and then my junior and senior year, I finally was able to throw raves and it was all electronic music and then there was a whole cultural shift and I was trying, I was like trying to explain to the world. I'm like, this is, there's something else here. Yeah. And I've always loved the idea as well that music without words, it's, you know, that, and that's, that's kind of the shame. Like what I'm trying to do now with this podcast of connecting with people from around the world, certainly not just Americans, certainly not just wealthy Americans, just people. Obviously yeah. language is a barrier to that. But music, especially without words, we all can experience that the exact same way, no matter who you are, no matter where you are. There's something really powerful about just that, the frequencies that cannot be misinterpreted by literally anybody on the entire planet. And this whole language thing, it's, it's kind of a shame. And I, you know, it's kind of, kind of sucks that I can't chat on a deep level with somebody uh, from a foreign country, but music is one way to access that. It's very unifying. It brings us all together. It catalyzes the... The feeling, yeah. Whether it's around a fire or in a room, yeah. Right? Like dig into uh, into Africa, you know the, the sounds that come off that continent. Oh yeah, like, the old, you know the, the, the origins of all rhythm. Well, while white people were sitting in a in a chair, you know, like oh that's nice. Like <laughs> it's like okay, that's that's good. You know, I love classical music, but rhythm, dancing, you know, all of these other yeah. things, we we kind of. We missed that in <laughs> certain parts of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, we are missing that today. I think, I think we need more of that. So, so do that, man. Bring that, bring that yeah. back into uh, an audience. It's, it's, a, it's always a search. But, uh, I, you know, again, I want to thank you very much for, for joining me and uh, for sharing your story. I do want to give you this chance now. Promote whatever you want to promote. Where can people find you, support the work that you're doing? The floor is yours to wrap this up. 
Thanks, Ross. It's, I mean, I'm not selling anything. It's just yep. me. Uh, I'm an open book. I'm please, uh, if somebody's going through something, reach out to me on my website, I'mAaronBaker.com. I mean, DM on Instagram and, and Twitter and all that. I'm Aaron Baker. Um, so please feel free, uh, pay my information forward. If you know somebody, a family member, a friend, I'm happy to connect. And, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. Well, what can you say, folks? That concludes another outstanding episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. What an incredible story that is. I knew as soon as I discovered him online that this was going to be a great interview, and it absolutely was. I am just thrilled that he took the time to sit with me and to share that remarkable story. Again, I don't ask for a lot of you. I provide, provide, provide. I'm happy to do that. I only ask the bare minimum, and that is that you rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. You leave a nice review, you subscribe, you share, you comment, you like, you reach out. I like hearing from you. I like knowing that you're out there. So connect and help me grow this podcast because I can't do it without your help. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I really appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of Beat the Often Path.